Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Book Reviews. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, listeners, to... Well, it's not books and nachos anymore. We're just now playing podcast book review. I guess nachos are, you know, they're just not healthy for you anymore. We just don't eat them. They're stuck in the supply chain. Yeah. They, they can't get here. <laughs> Vampires can't eat them. So it's just not appropriate. We're rebranding our uh, literary selves and in doing so covering books I never thought I'd read. This is Stuart and I'm here to talk about Twilight with my good friend here, Jacob. Yeah, this is Jacob. It's weird because I feel like this is my fault. It is. Because I'm always making jokes about Twilight because I've seen the movies. Mm -hmm. I've never read these books. I never planned in my whole life to read these books, but here I am reading them. Well, yeah. And why is that? I mean, I think Anything that's a phenomenon is worth considering. If 47 million copies of this book sold... 35 different languages it's been translated in. Yeah, I want to know what that's about, even if I don't like it. And I'll just go ahead and put it up front. I never thought that this would be a series I would discover and be like, oh, wow, this is so me. I think you know whether you're going to be a fan of this or not, but I definitely want to understand why. Whenever something is big as this got, I want to know what caused that phenomenon to happen. And I feel like I got a little bit of help on this journey because my wife read all these books as they were coming out, hates the films, like never even finished the first film, but loved these books, bought them day one as they came out. Funny you should say that, because that was my first exposure to Twilight. Before they were movies, I had a friend living in Utah, and she was like, they're just all over in the bookstores. They have these huge displays, this book series about vampires. I like horror. I'm like, oh, that sounds good. You know, what do I know? And she like was swearing that <laughs> they were really good books, you know, three years later, when the first movie comes out, she would have nothing to do with it. There was something about the books that feels worth exploring without talking about the movies. We are going to talk about the movies. If you join us for Silver Level over at Now Playing the Movie Review Show, that's being covered in five podcasts. But here, for you readers, we want to see why these books specifically were hits. And it's interesting you bring up a friend from Utah, because I know Stephanie Meyer, and this is why I knew about Twilight before the movies came out. I knew they were books. I wasn't going to read them because they sounded silly. But Stephanie Meyer is a Mormon. I grew up in a Mormon family. Myself, some other siblings are no longer associated with that religion, but my dad and other siblings are, and my dad always gets super excited when a Mormon breaks it big into pop culture. So he's like, oh, these great books, they're about vegetarian <laughs> vampires. And I'm like, no, stop. V vampires are not vegetarians. And look, I'll, I'll admit, I had a little bias because I'm like, I went to a Mormon college. Like, there isn't a lot of pushing boundaries there. So I'm like, the, I know what these books are going to be like. They're going to be soft. They're not going to be what I want. So yeah, I kind of scoffed at the whole idea because yeah, of Stephanie Meyer's background. Yeah. So Mormonism and its influence on this, I do think there's just starting off the bat, that might have been how this first caught fire was the fact that it had sort of a built-in audience that, yeah, this woman that had gone to Brigham Young University as a English lit major, but didn't seem to have any aspirations to be 
a best-selling novelist. She was basically a mother of three married to a Mormon missionary. And one day, I, I wish it were so easy for everyone. <laughs> one day she just had a dream, you know, a bad day of taking care of the kids and whatever. She lapses into this, I don't know if it's a nightmare or a wet dream, but she imagines a girl and a vampire in a field and he's sparkling like diamonds. And she wakes up and three months later, she has a manuscript called Forks. And they want to turn it into a trilogy. She has no trouble trying to jump on that young adult literary craze that was happening in 2003. Yeah, I, again, not a scene I'm involved in, so I don't know what the trends were. But yes, has a dream, writes it. Chapter 13 it describes that scene you were talking about. She writes from there to the end and then has to like backlog it and write the beginning of the story. But only, you know, you, you talked about like J.K. Rowling and you hear these like, I had to send it to 100 publishers before I got picked. She sent it to like 13 and like got in a bidding war. Yeah. So is it a Mormon plot? I, I'm just going to ask. It does feel, and I'm, I only say that in half jest, but I do feel like that someone there must have helped her. I mean, maybe Orson Scott Card is involved in this. There is a thing known as the Mormon Mafia, like in literary groups. So right. perhaps. I mean, again, you use the angle that you can. As someone that tried to break into Hollywood and failed, whatever it takes, if it's Mormonism that they're buying, sell yourself as a Mormon. I mean, I do think that there had to be some reason why this manuscript stood out, and it's not just the writing. I'll, before we get into the book... <laughs> what writing? Yeah, like, we can all agree there's nothing about the prose that's so unique that this had to be the one, right? It's the difference between writing a masterpiece and jumping on a trend at the right moment. This happened to come out at a time where we really cared about young adults reading and vampires. We're not the audience. Can we just say that? Like, so of course this prose is not going to be up to par for us. Maybe this is standard. You read those Hunger Game books, mm -hmm. which were young adults. Maybe this is on that mark. But yeah, as I'm reading this, I keep making notes like, how many adjectives do you come up with to describe hair and eyes? And I feel like Volvo had a hand in making this book too. Like, so much talk about <laughs> Volvos. Yeah, well, we'll get into the plot in just a second. But just to reflect on all of this. So Harry Potter had like six books out at this time. And I do think the market was just hungry for this particular demographic. We want to serve this. These are who buy books. Young people buy books now. They actually read. At a time when more and more, we didn't quite have smartphones at this point, but the internet was dominating the minds of our impressionable youth. They found a way to get people hooked on book series. Harry Potter did it first and did it bigger. This book, Twilight, Sold 47 million, you know, obviously a big, big hit, but that's, you know, a third of what Philosopher's Stone, Sorcerer's Stone sold. So it is a big book, but it is not even a fraction of what J.K. Rowling was able to do with her series. It was a wannabe. Let's just call it what it is. This was riding a wave of young adult fiction. And let's be honest, like, it's not really catering to the guy crowd. Like, it's all told from Bella's point of view. It's very female-centric. So I, I, it would be hard to pull in, like, both sides like Harry Potter did, I think. 
Okay, so I know almost nothing about Twilight as I'm picking up this 500-page book. I kind of enjoy that. I'm like, oh, this is a thing. I'm going to learn so much. Big surprises. One, I thought this was a story about a girl that had to choose between a werewolf and a vampire. We'll get there. There is no werewolf in Twilight. As far as I can tell, I know that Jacob will become that character, but I just want to point out, if you are partial to the lichens, <laughs> uh, you're not going to be liking this. Because, again, the dream was about a girl and a vampire, and it really is focused on two characters, Edward and Bella, and Jacob and the werewolves and all of that. You're telling me this becomes a thing in later books. Yeah, I mean, all we'll get here is Jacob telling some legends about werewolves and the cold ones, but yeah, you're never going to see a transformation. You're never going to see a fight between a vampire and a werewolf in this book. You may not even suspect that he's a werewolf. If you didn't know the movies or the later works, if you just picked up this book after coming out of a cave in the last 20 years, you may just think that he was the Native American character that would know lore and be able to tell you backstory. And yeah, he mentions that his tribe is connected to descendants of wolves, but I, I really don't think... That if you read this, you would think that he was a werewolf lusting after Bella. But, okay, another surprise of this. I thought that this was a love triangle. But actually, this is a book that is going to say that if you are homely and plain, every man on the planet (laughs) is going to just be tearing themselves up trying to get you. It's not just that the vampire wants to bite her. Literally, this girl blows in from Arizona. By her own admission, there's nothing special about her. She's clumsy. She falls down all the time. Okay, I gotta say, I love that character trait. Like, every time she's a klutz, like, I did kind of chuckle. Yeah, well, it's weird, right? Like, I mean, it's definitely not in a romance novel that, like, your heroine tumbles down the stairs. But I realize that it's actually the appeal. At first, I'm just like, I can't figure out what's attractive about Bella. And then I realized the more we got into it, oh, that's the appeal. That it's a fantasy for people that don't feel like they have a personal narrative that's exciting. If you felt like you've lived a life in the shadows, this is a story in which everyone discovers you and you are witnessed for being this exotic creature, even though you can't point to anything in your life that you could claim made you so. Yeah, I, I actually have like so many notes. Like, then this boy walks up to her mm. and asks her prom, then this yes. boy, then this, like everyone. But I think it also helps, not that she's just kind of playing for the reader to identify, but that this is also all first person it's all being told from her point of view and i i think that helps the reader get more into that character and see things through her eyes so the fact that it's she's not this gorgeous model like the vampires will end up being but yeah that she's just kind of a regular girl i it would help the reader really see themselves in this role and what's surprising about that is so much of the prose in the description is dedicated to that kind of superficial detail. I do feel like Stephanie Meyer is always talking about the way boys look and their eyes and what you just physical descriptions. We don't get into an interior life with these characters. I don't feel like there are depths. They're teenagers, and she writes with that mentality. And so it's just a little weird to me. I I just expected her to be more in the Jane Austen mold. Yeah, that was one of my notes is, like, Bella, awful to her dad, Charlie. Like, not a great person, but she's also a 17-year-old. So maybe that's just realism, because, like, I could see myself at that age, like, with a lot of those attitudes. So, again, great writing, or is Stephanie Meyer just in the right mindset to know her audience? 
And what is her beef? Is, is she a goth? We will find out that she had to move from Arizona. She's the only girl in Arizona that never got a tan. And that makes her pale. She shows up here in Forks, Washington. I, By the way, really wise, whoever the person, I'm guessing it's someone that pitched the, the book trilogy, said, we cannot have a trilogy called Forks. That's not, <laughs> not what we want. We'll, we'll figure it out. But yeah, she ends up at Forks, Washington, where everything's dreary and rainy and what have you. I feel like they're trying to say she's kind of goth. She's certainly got a chip on her shoulder, but I don't know why she's so angry. I mean, divorced parents, I think that's what it comes down to. I like the scenes with her and her dad, Charlie. A lot of times they're uncomfortable and she's really mean, but I'm like, but that also feels very real to me. So, like, I kind of appreciated those moments. Yeah, I mean, you know, the word spirited. I mean, you know, some would say bitchy, but, you know, I feel like it's absolutely important to have uh, a female that cuts against the grain. You don't want someone that conforms. And so the fact that she shows up here in a different culture and feels different. But what's weird, again, is that she's almost instantly accepted and desired. It's not like she's an outcast. It's not like when she shows up there, people won't be her friend. Quite the opposite. Every boy is trying to get those digits. And this is where, like, my bias against Christian cinema, or like I said, that, that a Mormon's writing this, it, things never feel that challenging. Almost everyone feels perfect. We're going to get a whole va vampire family. There are models. They're great citizens. Like, besides the external drama that will come in at the end, I just, yeah, there's not a lot of internal conflicts going on. A character development, you might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he is a perfect specimen. It just so happens that he is a predator. What they're going to tease here, the tension that exists is, yes, there are all these boys that want her, but one of them is a killer. And that is the excitement, the bad boy, someone that could literally rip her neck out and, and she could die. And maybe that's even the fantasy. He is lustful for her because, okay... Tell me if this is a Hallmark card you would want to send somebody. The scent of her blood. <laughs> you stink so amazing. Like, I would be really self-conscious if someone said, you have the smell that I just want to have you right here. And I'm like, mm, can you back it up? That is a little too much. But yes, I think the smell, what we're to understand is, because this is classic vampire stuff, virginity, right? When we talk about the fact that she's kind of simple and plain and all that, she hasn't had sexual experience. And so what's so exciting for all these boys is that they could take her virginity. Except Edward doesn't want that because he's a vampire and he knows he'll lose control. So like she almost looks like the predator at times coming onto him and like being super horny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about this relationship. And if we like Edward Cullen, who, you know, we're not here to review Fifty Shades of gray i have seen that movie i haven't seen the <laughs> twilight movie yet but i knew that 50 shades of gray is said to be based on twilight and they do seem to have the similar take on the idea of this is about a woman that's trying to save a perverted man a man who seems ruined by his desires and who will win in this battle between purity 
and perversity. Yeah, you say that, yet she's the one that wants to be perverse. That's where it gets weird, is she wants to know more about it, and he's always pushing her away, and, and yet, he's very abusive. Like, I hope my daughters never date someone like this. Like, Correct. Like, they go out to dinner at one point, and he's like, eat your food. Like, always giving her orders, telling her what to do. Yeah, very controlling and stalky. Like, always watching yeah. her in the shadows. As she sleeps. Again, it is a fantasy to be witnessed, but I don't think it's a comfortable fantasy to think that someone is stalking you with the mentality that they may take your life. I mean, again, I guess that could be, again, perverse. That could be seen as sadomasochism, like gray. But you're right. I feel like in the end, she's the kinkier one because she's the one, once she figures out his secret, and it takes a while. But, you know, they stare at each other. They do flirting. He saves her in the parking lot from an out-of-control car. But eventually, she figures out, calls him out, you're a vampire. And he's like, well, yeah. And she wants to be one, too. Help me out, Jacob. Why is he resistant to that? Because it's about you're alive and you don't know what a gift life is and she sees it you know as just getting old and being a burden again maybe seeing her parents as a model and their divorce and their unhappy relationship so you can see like that's why she wants to be frozen in time but he's like no you got to live your life like that is a precious gift that i don't have that you could have okay yeah because he died at 17 he actually got the spanish flu back in 1918 in chicago We'll find out that he was dying like so many people did during a pandemic. Yeah, both of his parents had died as well. Yeah, and he's saved by a vampire doctor who ends up becoming his adoptive dad. And they're like, they've got this whole collected cult. It's weird because it really plays with incest taboo. Like, these kids are dating each other and treating each other as siblings. Yeah, they live as a family, as the colons. You have Dr. Carlisle Colon as the father and Esme as the mom and then five kids and like they've paired up and like are seeing each other and yeah it's very strange yeah and it's even said that Edward another woman Rosalie was turned with the idea that he would eventually date her and instead the fact that he's going to turn and be more attracted to this human I think is going to be a source of tension I assume that will play out throughout the books yeah, we'll, we'll find out what Rosalie's deal is in another book. Yeah, but again, like, I can only think of Flowers in the Attic <laughs> as another book series that teased incest and erotic fantasy so closely together. It's weird. That was the weird thing as I watched the films years ago and then reading through this again and, and revisiting it. Like, Mormon author, but I don't know if we have to break out Freud. Like, is this a, a peek inside the mind of Stephanie Meyer? This this pent-up tension as a, a housewife with three kids staying at home all day. But for such a clean background, like, there is some real perversity here. Yeah, is that it, it almost played it sometimes as a satire of Mormonism. I couldn't tell where we were to get out of that. But mostly this family is perfect. And as you say earlier, they use the word vegetarian, but they are seen as having principles because to them, vegetarian vampirism means we will go drink the blood of animals in the forest. We'll go kill a bear every other weekend, but we don't prey upon human beings. 
And this seems to all come from Carlisle, who has created this coven when we get his backstory. Like, he is the son of a preacher who goes and, like, hunts witches and vampires. Like, I don't know if they're just, it's like in the pilgrim days where they falsely accused if there actually are witches, because there are vampires, and Carlisle gets bit by one. And I, I figured that's why he's so moral, because he had this religious upbringing, and as he turned into a vampire, he always regretted having to kill a human, and then he found that he could feed himself on animal blood and go vegetarian and start teaching that to other vampires. I wish the story gave more room for the ensemble because I do feel like it's hard to be as obsessed with Edward and Bella as they are with each other. I mean, there are so many chapters of them saying, you're the only thing in the universe I've ever wanted. You're the only thing I can. I mean, at a certain point, that becomes just unbearable, quite frankly, to hear such professions based on, again, because you have an odor, not because there's anything (laughs) else about you, your mind, your wit. I guess there is this other thing. Edward feels like he can read everyone. He has the gift of mind reading. Because her thoughts are clouded, he thinks that means that she's interested. Yeah, it it should be said, vampires in Stephanie Meyer's universe, like whatever trait is your strongest when you're a human if you turn into a vampire it becomes a superpower you're, you're basically an x-man and so yeah we have edward who could read minds well he'll have a sister alice who could see the future alice is the most interesting of the family members to me it, it, it said that she is clairvoyant but the interesting dilemma for her is she doesn't know her own past that she was rescued from an insane asylum some kind of mental ward by the doctor and she's more or less the same age as Edward. They're both about 100 years old, but teenagers still. Yeah, what's so weird, though, is like she is like 4'9". She is tiny. She could probably pass for a sixth grader. And we will eventually find out there's this predatory other vampire named James. And she was the initial victim. In the same way that Edward has jonesing for Bella... James was jonesing for Alice, and the reason why they turned her into a vampire, at least this is the way I understood it is, to protect her, like she became less attractive by becoming undead and no longer living. Yeah, you no longer have that scent, so I guess James lost interest. Right. And so now James has been looking for something else. I wonder how Alice feels about the fact that Bella has her old smell. And I don't know why none of them have gone into perfumery. Or I, I had lots of questions. Believe me, this is a very weird book. But Alice does feel like a character I want to learn more about. I mean, I don't know if you noticed this, but there are no fangs with these vampires. She's throwing mm. out all the rules. Basically, you know, it has something to do with having your blood sucked and you get a virus in your blood and turn into a vampire. But daylight, not a problem. Like nothing really seems to be a problem. Again, part of my problem with this book is just the perfection and how easy it is for these vampires. Yeah, they're haunted. And again, the, early on, they talk about how Weathering Heights was in a book assigned to them in high school English class. And that seems to be some kind of aspiration. I, and my memory of that book is hazy, but that Heathcliff was this gloomy character that Catherine wanted to rescue. And so, again, it wasn't like he was a psychopath. We're never to believe that Edward would actually hurt Bella. It's just that he's so morose can she save them and how can they be together and this gloomy forks town feels a lot like the scottish moors it's clouded and gray but if sun were to peek through you would see 
the only other thing I knew about Twilight, vampires sparkle. <laughs> and I guess this comes straight from the dream. Yeah, though, I feel like, because I have seen that movie, that they go with a different interpretation. Because here, it does feel like there's a lot more gleam to it. Like, they're almost on fire. They're shining so brightly. So, that's going to be different in the film, I know. Is that a fantasy for people? Do people want to have sex with diamonds? I just... That doesn't sound erotic. <laughs> a girl's best friend is a diamond. That's the slogan. <laughs> I, there, you're right. What am I saying? It's It's been talked about in song forever. So yes, a vampire without fangs that sparkles like a diamond, who's kind of like this morose Heathcliff, who can't live without her, but won't turn her into a, an eternal uh, like himself. So they have this doomed time to be together. And then he got James. Again, I think it's all hinging on the fact. And it comes in real late. And real sloppy, too. I don't really understand James, other than he wanted Alice. But this is not the story of a vampire versus a werewolf, but a vampire versus a vampire. Yeah, that's part of the problem, having it all be from Bella's point of view, is that we can't know there's danger out there until she knows. Which, oh boy, get ready for this, comes during a baseball game. Like, that is the big turning point in this book. Baseball! Vampire baseball! Okay, that was the biggest surprise. I gotta say, I've heard a lot of snickering and scoffing about Twilight and, you know, whatever. But, like, nobody ever warned me that there was vampire baseball. The thing is, I had forgotten about this. And as soon as it said, oh, there's thunder, we got to play baseball, it all flooded back to me. Like, how ridiculous this is. Like, this is your big turning point to the third act to get to the big drama is vampire baseball. They could only play when there's thunder because they hit that ball so hard. This is what the family does? Like, I've never played intramural sports with my mom. Okay, because you're not Mormon. Like, this does feel like a very Mormon thing. Oh, okay. Like, the churches have, like, softball leagues and, yeah, all this kind of stuff. But you play with your whole family? Sometimes, yeah. Oh, that's weird. Just, to me, I just... Families are huge with Mormons. Like, the colons feel like the most Mormon thing to me in this book mm -hmm. because, yeah, it, it, big family and always hanging out, loving being with each other. Yeah. And again, I think in the context of this book... Even though they're vampires and all that, it's pretty wholesome. I mean, yeah. again, I think we are to share Bella's fantasy of wanting to join this family and be a vampire. Like, in the end, Jacob's going to have to do a whole lot to sell being a werewolf. Because I do think that this is about, yeah, the appeal of vampirism and equating that with maybe Mormonism. But unfortunately, that baseball game gets crashed by James and a couple of other vampires. And this is where it really goes off the rails for me. Like, this whole... We got to get Bella back to Arizona now because she's got to save her mother who she thinks is in danger. And then they're going to like split up so they could like try to lure James another direction. Yeah, this is proof that Stephanie Meyer has no love for the horror genre because the tension, the trying to hide, the threat of a different vampire, none of that is played in a way that feels like a stalker or, you know, like a thriller of any kind. Like I imagine in the movie, this is the stuff that they'll play up because in the book, it just becomes an excuse for these two to go on and on about how they can't be separated and how hard it will be and i mean th that gets really old you gotta admit yeah. like at 500 pages i don't know why the publisher didn't tell her to shorn some of this 
Is it because of Harry Potter? Again, it, it feels like, look, we've talked about this when we've done Stephen King. I don't like his writing because there's no editing. I like it to be tight. Like, I, I grew up with Kurt Vonnegut, who, like, a tight 200 pages. I'm in and out. And But I think, like, teenagers, you're going to spend your hard-earned allowance. Like, you want something big. So maybe you don't edit everything out of there that you normally would. Yeah. One other question, and it's just because this is my copy, but Twilight, these things are all based on cycles of the moon. One's going to be an eclipse, breaking dawn, and all, you know, it's a lunar pattern. It's mentioned in this particular novel that Twilight is the favorite time of vampires because it's the in between the sunniness and the eternal night, which actually they don't exactly like. Again, it's, it's anti what you know about vampires, but the cover is none of that. The cover of this book is hands holding an apple. Oh, come on, Adam and Eve. I don't know who's offering the forbidden fruit here. Like, mm. you know, if you're going to go with traditional gender roles, Bella is tempting Edward, and that's a dangerous thing. She could end up dead because of that. Or is she being tempted? Is the apple vampirism, and she is tempted by that? Yeah, I mean, I got that. I mean, obviously, Forks is this lush green garden of Eden, and yeah, there's some temptation, but by and large, this is not the story of Adam and Eve. No. And so I just, I questioned that choice, but eh, you know, I questioned a lot of choices here. The <laughs> climax, I'm going to agree with you. Once it has to get quote unquote exciting and basically all hangs on the idea of Bella has been bit by a rival vampire and Edward has to suck the poison out without going too far. It all kind of feels like Sexual experimentation for virgins, really. In front of his family, but yes. Yeah. yeah, right. And they're all watching and having opinions about it. That is really bizarre. It's not my experience. Let me just put it that way. I can't imagine sharing all of this with my folks and my brother. I don't know, maybe because none of this feels set up. It just does feel like someone dreamed something and, and just rambled on and on about their dream. Because, yeah, yeah the, this whole temptation that he could suck the poison out and she won't turn. And it all feels out of the blue for me. And I'm like, okay, I guess this is where we're going. But I wish the writing was better. So things were set up and paid off. Yeah, it is shocking. I, again, a lot of this I knew and I knew it wasn't going to be for me, but I was surprised by the amateurism of the writing. I really did think there would be more of a Jane Austen touch. You know, Jane Austen, she wrote more than just about doomed love affairs. I mean, there were class, you know, like a social structure, the things that keep people apart. I guess that's the vampirism. But yeah, this woman does not have the gift of prose that classic literature has that she's trying to emulate. Or if she's trying to feel modern, again, I don't read young adult novels, but these all feel like pretty generic teens. Like, I don't feel like you're tapping into 2005 when this is coming out. It, they all feel very surface level. Yeah, and pretty vanilla. I got to say, you know, if you were expecting kinkiness, I guess I kind of was with Fifty Shades of Grey. Interview with a vampire, there's all that homoeroticism. And like this, it's just a guy and a girl wondering if they should do it. And it's devoid of erotica. I was surprised that there was no consummation. Either she's not turned into a vampire, and I don't think she loses her virginity. No, she does not. Edward cannot go that far. And yeah, he teases her. I did like the end. Like they, again, awful behavior. Like I'm going to force you to go to the prom. But I did like the fact that Bella like thought she was going to a turning ceremony at the Collins. And no, you're just going to the prom. And like, 
Yeah, he's going to bend down and kiss that neck. Just teasing her. Just sticking the tip in, I guess. Yeah, it does feel like he likes his ability to manipulate this human being. And as long as she's a human being, he's got a power over her that he wouldn't if she were a vampire. That's what it kind of feels like. I'm going to keep you in this box because I can control you. And I don't know. I don't really like their relationship. I didn't think it was sweet. I didn't find it charming. I know it wasn't written for me, but all kinds of problems in this relationship. Red flags are plenty. I agree. My wife's perspective when she's reading this, and she's a big Stephen King fan, and she said she was just wandering through the bookstore, and this was like had a display, so she picked it up, and she loved it. Like, maybe tapping into a 17-year-old girl is easy to do when you've been a 17-year-old girl, but she's like, oh, like, as a fantasy, like, yeah, no, she has said, I don't want my daughters to have a relationship like this, but as just a fantasy to get away and escape from the world, it did it for her. Yeah, I agree. I think if there's an appeal, and I try to think about, okay, I don't like this, but what would people like about it? The appeal is in the impossible romance of it, that you're going to try and enter into a realm, a cult, a culture that feels dangerous. It's full of blood and murder and what have you, and yet... Who's going to win? Your virginity or their perversity? I mean, that kind of tension is throughout this novel. But yeah, in the end, kind of bland. I think I don't want to oversell that because if you really thought that this was Fifty Shades of Kinkiness. Yeah, if that's your reference point, it is not that. (laughs) It really wasn't. I I, I guess I really did think that there would be more three ways and just all kinds of pairing ups. (laughs) And it just is, yeah, these two people that just like each other because of the stink. And it's a smell that I can easily resist. It was fine, like, to get through, to read. It was easy to read. I will say that. Yeah, I had no trouble. I was like, 500 pages, it goes by in a blip. It's easy to get through. And if you want to understand the phenomenon, like, I think this shows you exactly why it became a thing. Again, if you're a 16-year-old girl, like, this is probably great stuff. But I at least... Like, look, not for me, but I could kind of get it from reading this, like what the appeal is. I'm curious to know what happens next. I can't say that this was good, but it's all set up, right? There are three more books, and we'll just go ahead and put it out there. Uh, Yes, we're doing Twilight. It's going to take us six weeks to unveil those five podcasts. We're going to cover six Stephanie Meyer Twilight books. Kind of six and a half, right? (laughs) Yeah, true enough. So we already know that the next week is the second book. The biggest selling book, I'll add, New Moon. This is apparently the one that everyone loves. After that is Eclipse, and then there is Breaking Dawn. But Stephanie Meyer has dipped back into this phenomenon a couple times. She also wrote a gender flip of Twilight. We're going to cover that after the four books called... Life and Death. And then I guess recently she decided to retell the story of Twilight through the perspective of Edward, which I actually, after reading this version, Bella seems like the obvious one. I definitely would rather know what Edward is thinking in some of these moments. And I do because I read that just so I could have that in the back of my mind when I rewatched the movie mm, and discuss mm-hmm. Twilight. Like, because I'm sure some of that backstory was already in Stephanie Meyer's head when she was writing this. I wanted that perspective. And it should be said point five there is a novella that goes with eclipse it has to do with one of the characters from that so i think we're going to cover those together yeah right we're going to cover all of that six podcasts and so i hope you join us whether you read them or not and i'm not thinking that you need to but it is kind of fun to find out about a phenomenon i do hope you stay with us and join us next week for new moon
Thank you for listening to Now Playing Podcast Book Reviews. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. In the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find more than 150 more book reviews, including many of the works of Stephen King, the Ian Fleming Bond books, the Planet of the Apes novels, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, and many more. Enjoy movies? The Books and Nachos hosts have done more than 1,200 movie reviews, which you can also find at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. This episode of Now Playing Podcast Book Reviews is copyright 2022, Venganza Media Incorporated, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, redistributed, or modified without the express permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.